Thank you so much, Paul and Alison and Ian. Morning again, everybody. It's, um, it's a lovely thing getting up and out first thing on Easter Sunday morning, isn't it? Uh, to celebrate in this way. And especially after last year, only being able to meet online, to be here in person, to speak to actual real faces is a marvellous thing. Happy Easter. It's so brilliant. How early is too early for chocolate? Just asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> The resurrection of Jesus is good news. That's why on Easter Sunday, there's always, quite rightly, an atmosphere of celebration about our services. There is joy here because the resurrection is good news. When we've got good news to share in our personal lives, our first instinct is to share it. If something positive happens to us, we want to share it. But we don't just want to share it. Usually, we want to share it far and wide. We want as many people as possible to know when something good happens. In this social media age that we live in, this is especially true. When anything happens that's even vaguely positive, people declare it. Our social media feeds are full of people's announcements and good news. So there might be a picture of a ring with a diamond as an announcement that someone's engaged. Or somebody standing on the threshold of their home announcing that they have a, a new house or a scan picture announcing a baby is on the way. People like to share good news. Now, I'm guilty of it too, even with very small bits of news. Someone this week sent me a box of speciality Easter donuts as a surprise. I know, right, what an amazing gift. Feel free to just bear that in mind. Um, so what did I do, as well as eat them with the family? I shared it, of course I did. I know, look at those, look at those. We want to let the world know that good news has come, whether it's small or whether it's significant. There's a recent trend online I'd be interested to know whether you've heard about called How It Started. That Johnny Bennett, you're just looking at the donuts now, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's called Donut Time and a commission is absolutely fine. There's a recent trend online called How It Started versus How It's Going. And the idea is that people share a picture of kind of their humble beginnings, and then they show a picture of their successes. Um, it very quickly went completely viral. Lots of famous people joined in. So, for example, here's Simone Biles, the gymnast. Uh, how It Started, there is a child versus How It's Going as an Olympic champion. Ellie Goulding, as she started out as a musician and then on tour in front of a crowd of tens of thousands. Kylian Mbappe, the French footballer, posting a throwback picture of himself and how it's going on the front cover of FIFA. I like this one. This is Thomas Pesquet, the astronaut, as a child playing in make-believe space rockets, how it started, and then to actually launching into space. It did get a bit ridiculous, of course. Pet owners started joining in like that, for example. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection is the most significant event that have ever happened in history. Jesus, how it started versus how it's going, is pretty epic. A baby born in a stable among animals to a virgin, and now an empty tomb, a dead man back to life by the power of God. 
And when we look at the Gospels, we find something interesting about Jesus and actually a bit surprising about the good news of his resurrection. The resurrection appearances could very easily have been much more public. Yes, there was no social media, but Jesus could have declared that he'd risen much further and much wider if he had wanted to. He could have shown up in the, uh, the temple, in the middle of a worship service. He could have gone to the crowd of Roman soldiers who crucified him. He could have appeared in the Roman Colosseum. But when we look at Jesus' resurrection appearances, we discover him appearing to a whole bunch of individuals. We see that Jesus is less interested in public announcements and more interested in personal encounters. And that's what we're exploring today, that on this Easter Sunday, Jesus wants encounter more than announcements. And we see this in John's Gospel in particular. We've heard three resurrection stories of Jesus encountering individuals read to us just now. The whole of John's Gospel is a string of Jesus' deep and personal encounters with individuals. Jesus meets Nicodemus, for example, the religious leader. He meets him on his own, tucks away at night one night, and he changes completely changes the course of his life. Jesus meets a woman at a well on her own who'd been marginalised. He weeps with Mary and he comforts Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus. And as we've heard, after the resurrection, Jesus meets three of his followers one-on-one, Mary and Thomas and Peter. The resurrection is this cosmic, history-changing event. But when Jesus emerges from the tomb, he doesn't announce it to the world, but he meets with his friends. Mary, Thomas, and Peter have very different stories, very different personal challenges and circumstances. And in each story, Jesus encounters them with love and with grace and in a way that leaves them changed. And there's something we can learn there on this Easter Sunday about how Jesus wants to encounter us. Before we post on social media, Jesus is alive, as as some of us will have done Actually, Jesus wants to meet me, and he wants to meet you. Mary Magdalene first, and Jesus encounters her in her sorrow. As a woman, Mary was on the fringes of society. She'd had some troubling things about her past. You might remember the story where she has seven demons cast out of her. There's a lot of pain and trauma in her life. She'd been welcomed by Jesus. She follows him. She finds belonging But now he's died, and her hopes and her dreams have died as well. She's caught in grief and sorrow. Verse 11 from John 20 that we've heard. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Verse 13, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Many of us are no strangers to sorrow for any number of reasons. The death of a loved one a marriage that is difficult, friendships that are painful, a job that is stressful. We've had two funerals just this week of dearly loved church members who have died. Sorrow is sometimes a very real part of our lives. Mary is at the tomb weeping. She sees Jesus through her tears. She thinks he's the gardener. And then there's this one word which changes everything for her. He speaks her name and her world is changed. When someone you respect remembers your name, it feels really good. 
I remember going into Bishop Luffer's school not long after my eldest had started there. It was the second time that I'd been in the school and I was, you know, walking through the, it was like an open evening or something, and I bumped into the head teacher of Bishop Luffer's school and he remembered my name. And I was really impressed, but I was also, made me feel really good inside. When somebody that you respect remembers your name, it feels so positive. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? I... I kind of pride myself. I'm actually pretty good with names. But um, I've had a few occasions recently where I just haven't quite got the name. If you had this, I'm blaming it on COVID and brain fog and masks and stuff. But you see someone and it's there, isn't it? But you just can't quite... You have to kind of go around to get their name and bring it, bring it to mind before you can say their name. To the authorities, for us, often we are not names. Often we are numbers or details. You ring up... And you have to give your number. We're known by our tax number, or by our driving license details, or by our account number, or by our policy number. God knows us by our name and calls us by name. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Teacher, it's you. Jesus calls Mary by her name, and despite her past and her struggles and her sorrow, he meets her. This Easter Sunday, he knows all about us and he calls us by name. When we are overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, Jesus says, I know your name. Christians in Ukraine this Easter are facing sorrow more than we could ever know. But the reports that we're hearing from our brothers and sisters is that they will still be declaring and celebrating this resurrection story. It might be in bunkers instead of churches. It might be dispersed or in smaller groups rather than gathered in large numbers, but they're holding on to resurrection truths. They're trusting that Jesus will meet them in their sorrow as he did to Mary, and we can trust that he will do the same. Jesus encounters Mary in her sorrow, and he encounters Thomas in his doubt. The disciples would have spent a week trying to persuade Thomas that they'd seen Jesus, but he wasn't having any of it, verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Jesus appears to the disciples again. And I just kind of see him in my mind's eye, sort of scanning, looking out for Thomas in the room, seeking him out, the one who was doubting, calling him over to touch him. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Paul Thomas has got a bad reputation. He's been called Doubting Thomas for 2,000 years. That reputation's not going anywhere. But we would have been the same in his situation, would we not? Some of us here may well struggle with the claims of Jesus. We might be sceptical and unsure. Here we are singing songs to this person that we're assuming is alive. Is that true? Really? You might have intellectual doubts. Does this stack up? Does it make sense? The resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection is much more compelling than on first sight. There are good reasons to believe that this event really happened. 
I want to show you a short clip. It's only two minutes from a guy called Lee Strobel. He was a, a journalist and an atheist, and he became a Christian after investigating the claims of Jesus, an American author, and he wrote the book called The Case for Christ. Let's have a look at this. I like to look at the evidence for the resurrection in four categories. The first one is, did Jesus die on the cross? Was he dead? Virtually every scholar on planet Earth concedes that Jesus was dead after crucifixion. We have no record of anyone anywhere ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Uh, even the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, published a peer-reviewed scientific medical study of the evidence for the death of Jesus and said clearly the weight of the evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Even the atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludeman, says, historically, it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. So Jesus was dead. The second category of evidence is the early accounts we have for the resurrection. In other words, I used to think as an atheist that the resurrection was a legend, and that took a long time to develop in the ancient world. But what I learned is that we have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christian church a creed that is a eyewitness-based report of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this creed has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus. Within months. That is historical gold. So we've got a newsflash from ancient history on the resurrection. Third category of evidence is the empty tomb. And the best evidence for that is even the opponents of Jesus implicitly admitted the tomb was empty. Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now, they're conceding the tomb's empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. So everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. How did it get empty is really the issue. And that goes to the fourth category of evidence, which is eyewitnesses. You know, for most of what we know about ancient history, it comes from one or maybe two sources of information. And yet, for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. That is an avalanche of historical data. So you put all that together, and you have a really good case for Easter. Christians have come to believe the evidence that what Jesus said about himself was true, that he rose again, rose again, as that we're compelled by that evidence. And of course, along with knowing the truth of his presence in our lives. Now, this is only one short clip. It can't cover it all. But for anybody who's interested in the claims of Jesus, they are worth investigating, giving serious time to. We think they stack up. Have a look and see for yourselves if you're not sure. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, it changes Everything, the cross was a turning point in history. If Jesus is who he says he was, if he is who he claimed to be, then he is the Son of God. And a lot hinges on that. It might be that you're not doubting the facts that you are here and would say you are a Christian, but there are other doubts. Doubts that have come from circumstances, maybe. Doubting God's goodness, his love, perhaps. Doubting that your life is valuable, that it has a purpose. Whatever our doubts, what we see here in John is that Jesus is a God of encounter and he wants to meet us in those doubts. And he's gentle with Thomas. He's not harsh. He doesn't say, how dare you believe? Look, look all the miracles I've done for you that you've seen. He's gentle. He says, come and believe. And he says that to us. Come and believe. 
Jesus encounters Mary in her sorrow. He encounters Thomas in his doubts. And then he encounters Peter in his shame. Jesus calls Mary by name. He calls Thomas by name. He calls Peter by name. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, Peter has already seen Jesus. This isn't the first encounter. But he goes back to doing what he was doing before he met Jesus. He went back to fishing. And it's in that place that Jesus appears to them, helps them catch this enormous number of fish that we've read about, and then cooks them breakfast. Peter's had some powerful moments with Jesus. He's confessed that he's the Messiah. He's walked on water with Jesus. But he's also denied him three times. And he cannot believe that he did it. He is full of shame. And Jesus reinstates Peter by hearing his confession of love three times to offset those three denials. When he's gone back to fishing, back to how his life was before. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you, number one. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Shame is so devastating because despite knowing what is true, what it does is it tells you that it doesn't fully apply to you. Grace and mercy... Yes, I get it, but that's for, other, that's for other people. That's not for me. Love and forgiveness, others deserve that. That's not for me. Brené Brown, who writes and speaks so brilliantly on this subject, says this about shame. Shame is the most powerful master emotion. It corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. It is the fear we're not good enough. Peter is proof that Jesus can encounter us in our, in our shame and that we are never too far from God's grace. So here we are, Easter Sunday morning, thinking about this fact that Jesus is less interested in public announcements and more about personal encounters. This is the story of his life and the story of his resurrection appearances. And each of these encounters, Jesus calls them by name, he meets them, he encounters them at their point of need, and they go away completely changed. In this cosmic, history-changing event, Jesus comes to individuals. And this can be our takeaway on this Easter Sunday morning, whether it is sorrow or doubt or shame or indeed anything else, the God of the universe who raised Jesus from the dead comes to encounter us and he wants to meet us here. Amen. Amen.